what is your, what is your favorite Disney movie? Cartoon. Tangled. That doesn't apply to what I'm saying. We'll scratch that. Actually, no, it kind of does. All right, what else? What? Lion King. Kind of applies. Jungle Book? Yeah, kind of applies. All right, keep going. We'll just wait until it's my movie, and then I'll say, see, I told you, everyone agrees. Frozen. Getting closer to the best movie ever made by Disney. Snow White, great movie. What is it, Cars? No, not even close. Cool Runnings? That's a great movie. Did not anticipate that answer. (laughs) Cool Runnings, right? What else? Let's go back to cartoons. Come on, people. Wake up. Wake up. Beauty and the Beast, solid choice. Aladdin, really good choice. Cinderella, great choice. All wrong answers. The best Disney cartoon, in my opinion, ever made is, drum roll please, The Little Mermaid. Is it not? You have to be of the right era, but when that's the seaweed is always, I mean, it just gets you, doesn't it? I can remember, I'll be very too uh, open about this admission. I remember being a kid and watching the movie, and the prince's name was like Eric, right? What was the princess's name? Ariel. Is it Ariel or Ariella? Ariel. I remember watching her as this fish. And thinking, she's going to be so darn good looking when she transforms. Because we all knew it was coming. And sure enough, she was this beautiful princess that gets the prince. And my, and my point is this. We all, like, no matter, besides Cool Runnings, scratch that. I don't know where that came from. <laughs> Cartoons, Cool Runnings. I don't know. I think you need help. But, uh, <laughs> but we all started saying these movies that related to this Past history we have, an affection we have with Disney, but Disney's smart. They are marketing geniuses. They know something intuitively about us that we might not even realize about ourselves, and then they bring it to light, like with movies that over and over again have a very similar narrative. And what they do is they, they capture the mind of children by attaching themselves to an ideal that we're innately born with. Uh, one of the things we're innately born with is we kind of all love this idea of a fairy tale wedding. But Disney takes it a step further because it knows something about ourselves that we might not even realize. We don't just love weddings. We love kingly weddings. We, we love kingdom weddings. We, we love when the prince finds the princess or the princess finds the prince. And, and the reason that they know that without even understanding the gospel context is it really is a biblical pr- a principle that we are hardwired to pursue the wedding. And not not just the wedding itself, but really something bigger than that. The the wedding from the king himself, where the king or the prince finds the princess. And so every movie, movie after movie, it's just like a different, it might be a a mermaid, or it it, it might be a a girl who is, is underprivileged and has a wicked stepmother, and then finally she finds her prince. It's just over and over and over again. The narrative takes place, whereas there is this wedding and it's special, and it's sacred. And the groom, who, who is kingly, finds the princess of his dreams. And the reason that that has such gospel context is, is to see the Bible and to see the gospel appropriately, we have to look at it through this metaphor 
of a wedding where Jesus is the groom and we are his bride and he's pursuing us and it's sacred. In fact, in fact, I've done a lot of weddings here at New Life and they're always sacred, every one of them. And there's this moment, and I talk about this. In fact, some of us as staff, we disagree on how to handle weddings because they can be a pain for the setup and teardown. But what I've found over the years is because weddings are sacred, there's one person you don't mess with. Do you know who that is? The bride. Do you know why people talk about bridezilla? Right? It's kind of true, right? Not, not, not the women at our church, but other churches. They can be bridezillas, right? Or those people that go get married in Vegas. They're definitely bridezillas. But what, one of the things that they have to have is they have to have the moment. And the moment is right through this exit door right here. And so for them to have the moment, I say, please rise. And the groom's always right here. And he's usually kind of being a sap and he gets teary-eyed. And I'm sitting up there. There's even been some weddings where I'm close to the people where I get teary-eyed. And that's kind of awkward because I'm not the groom. And it's this special moment. And I say, please rise. And there's a middle aisle that is staff we go, oh, the middle aisle is such a pain because you have to put it back and it has to be so the vacuum could fit in between it. But I just don't mess with that. And we do the extra work because weddings are sacred because there's this moment where the bride and the groom lock eyes. That, that's the moment. Dad walks her down. They lock eyes. They cry. Who gives this woman to this man? Her mother and I. And then the groom gives the, the side bro hug to the dad, takes the bride up on stage, and everyone's paying attention. At the least of their attention span is anything I'm saying. No one cares what I'm saying. They just want to get to the end. And what do they want to see? The bride and groom kiss. They want to see the wedding take place. And then they cheer when they exit and they rise again. It is a special, sacred moment ordained by God. In fact, ladies, how many of you, from the time you were little, you've been dreaming about that day, right? And then you got married. No, I'm just kidding. In the Bible, there was more that was taking place within Jewish weddings. It was bigger than that. In fact, it looked more like a royal wedding. In a royal wedding, there's a processional. So, so for example... When William and Kate got married, it was a huge deal. Everyone just wants to know what that experience would be like. And they, they had a processional where they walked up to the chapel where they got married, and there were 500,000 people lining the streets to see the prince lead through the processional. And you know how many people were watching this thing on TV? 40 million people. I was not one of them. I could have cared less. Maybe, I don't know if you watched that or not, but everyone was wanting to know what that was like. And so the reason I bring all of that up is that's Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is the processional. Jesus has been uh, just the long-awaited Messiah. And since Luke chapter 9, as we head towards Easter, in Luke chapter 9, he turns his face towards Jerusalem and he begins his procession. And think of kind of William and Kate, 500,000 people lining the streets. And he, he starts his processional to the place where he is going to die, to the place where then he's going to rise from death. And he's setting the stage for ultimately the wedding with his bride, which is us. That's why this is so sacred. We intuitively understand the importance of a wedding. 
But before he takes his bride, which is us, if we're in Christ, he first goes to a cross. He first dies in our place for our sin. He then rises from death. He conquers it so that his bride would be redeemed. It is the best love story of all time. And here's how the processional begins. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke 19 and follow this with me. We're going to start in verse 28 this Palm Sunday. The Bible says this, And when he had said these things, he went ahead. Going up to Jerusalem, the processional. And when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called the Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, and this is all prophesied, we'll get to that in a second. Go into the village in front of you where you are entering and you will find a colt tied in which no one has ever uh, yet sat. He said, untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this. The Lord is in need of it. I just kind of go to Star Wars. I just think of the Jedi Knight trick that that would have taken, right? They say, the Lord is in need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. This has to be supernatural. Who's going to give up their colt, right? Who's going to give up their donkey in this climate? This was a key part of their economy. But then all of this is happening, kind of the backstory, all of this is happening during Passover, which is incredibly significant, incredibly symbolic. Because Passover, everything about Passover in the Old Testament is pointing to Christ. And the Passover season goes way back to Moses when God brings down judgment on Pharaoh. And he starts putting these plagues into place because Moses is saying through God, let my people, talking about Disney movies, right? Let my people, what? Go. Let my people go. And Pharaoh is stubborn and hard-hardened. hard heart, and, and, and so all of this is taking place. And the way that God's people aren't judged with the, with the last judgment when God takes the firstborn sons of Pharaoh's people is that they put blood on their door and then the, the angel of, passes by and now God's people don't have to pay the penalty of Pharaoh's hard heart. All of this is symbolic. In fact, in the Old Testament, there were sacrifices for sins. There was a sacrificial lamb who was chosen by the people of God where they would confess their sins and sacrifice the animal in a substitutionary way. And the animal was killed and died in their place for their sins. And the blood of the animal would cover them for their sins. All of this taking place. Look at the Old Testament. If, if you don't catch more than three or four things today, catch this. The Old Testament, everything is pointing to Christ. And then after we have Christ now, 2,000 years later, everything we're doing is looking back to his death and to his resurrection and living the new life that we have in him through the power of the Holy Spirit. But Jesus then comes on the scene as now he is riding on this donkey and he's the perfect lamb. He's the perfect lamb that was slain in our place, taking on the wrath of God, the penalty of sin, eternal condemnation, literally passing over us where we don't have blood on a door. We have blood covering our sins because of the work of the cross. This is good news. This is the gospel. This is the controversy that divides culture. Everyone wants a Savior who gives a free ticket and entrance into heaven. But people have a problem with the cross. People have a problem with the violence of it, with the wrath of God attached to it, with the penalty attached, that not everyone gets into heaven. That it's for those who have that blood covering their sins. And so he's making his way. The colt is being untied, transported on a donkey, 
And I, I want you to think about this for a second. Jesus isn't just the king. Jesus is the king of kings. And the king of kings makes a humble entry. And the, and the reason that he makes this humble entry is because, number one, he's humble. But number two, this is the prophecy. It kind of attaches itself to King David. King David would, walk, would ride around on a donkey as well. But most kings were too good for that. In fact, after David, history tells us that after that, they would, they would get transported on horses. And so you don't see a lot of pictures of kings in history on donkeys. That would be foolishness. But Jesus, it's prophesied about, we'll read it in a second, comes in on a donkey. And I just want you to think for a second. I heard someone say this this week, and I want to quote this. Think for a second what that actually is like and how, how significant that is. A donkey is not the most glamorous of animals. I mean, that's why Shrek's such a great movie, right? It's funny. But it's like William and Kate show up to this processional, half million people lining the streets. And, and here's kind of the equivalent. Think about it. This is how humble it is. It's like you would think they would be in a, in a Maserati or a Rolls Royce, and they're just kind of cruising down the streets in their modern-day donkey, the Geo Metro. That, that's what's taking place in this scene. Incredibly, incredibly humble. Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. And here it is. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. It's this beautiful picture of the bride just waiting for her groom. Hundreds of years. In fact, from the book of Malachi to the book of of the Gospels, and the Gospels take place, there's, there's like 400 years of just silence. These prophecies are even older than that, but God's people are waiting. It's like a single woman who's praying for a husband, and she has this prayer closet where she's saying, you know, come, no matter what the cost, I'm just going to wait patiently on the Lord, wait patiently on the Lord, and all of a sudden she's getting up there in age and she gets a little more impatient. She's saying, God, I thought your promises were true. I thought if I followed you no matter what, then you were going to give me the desires of my heart. And she's frustrated and she's waiting. That, that's the bride of Christ. There's this tension that's mounting in the story and the narrative of the Gospels where they're saying, where is our Messiah? And then when he does come on the scene, they have an incredibly different idea of what the Messiah should even be. But they're waiting patiently, like a bride waiting for her future husband. And now all of a sudden, this is why this is so intense. This is why the people are shouting. And here's what Jesus is going to say. The Pharisees are going to get upset about this process. God's people and the people around Jesus are incredibly excited. And Jesus makes this statement. I'll read it in just a second here. He says, the, the Pharisees rebuke him, and he says, hey, it's not their fault. If they, don't, if they don't shout, if they don't get excited, this is such a big deal. This is such a centerpiece of salvation and humanity and the way that we are seeing our entrance into heaven and living a new life with the Lord. It's so central to the process that they don't say anything. Even the rocks are going to cry out. Think about the translation there. It's like if we don't get excited in church about the power of Jesus' death and resurrection, then even the communion cups are going to start to shake. Your chairs are going to start to wiggle. The carpet squares aren't even glued down. They're going to pop up. Things are going to happen because this is the power of God. Of course you're supposed to be excited about it. Jesus just blasts them. Here it is, verse 35. And they brought it to Jesus. 
and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks. This is the processional. They spread their cloaks along the road. And as he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, and here's a prophecy as well, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Disciples start doing some interesting things. They start throwing their cloaks down. That sounds like something you would just kind of pass over, but it's significant because disciples didn't even have a place to lay their head, and that was their only blanket. And so they're taking the only blanket that they even have, and they're laying it before the feet of Je- or the donkey of Jesus. They're putting it on the saddle of Jesus, and they're saying, I don't care if I have to sleep outside in the cold. I don't care if I don't have a clean piece of clothing, close myself. This is a massive idea. This is transformational. I'm in this moment and I'm not going to miss it. And so Jesus is going to be in this moment. And so they get him on that donkey. And as they're doing, the people are rejoicing. Psalm 118.26 says, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And they're filled with emotion. They're filled with passion. And there's something so significant about this moment. Check this out. This is exactly what they would say in the Old Testament when a king would go to battle and their life was in danger. When a spiritual leader in the presence uh, was in the presence of controversy going into battle, they would say things to the king like, God has anointed you. God has appointed you. God has blessed you. God will deliver us. There would be a national day of feasting in the Old Testament, a day of rejoicing, a day of celebrating. It was a huge deal. And so Jesus rides into Jerusalem, and he does so as a conquering king. Now, it's not the way that they see it, but it is the way that God intended it. Because they looked at their current plight as the thing that God needed to conquer And Jesus is saying, no, it's so much bigger than that. This is going to affect eternity. This isn't just about the Jewish audience's felt need of the day because they were living under oppression. But as you see Jesus in this processional riding into Jerusalem, he's doing so in a way where he's conquering sin. He's defeating Satan. He's defeating death. He's defeating hell. He is a conquering hero and he's on a war path to conquer now all of your enemies all of my enemies, and not just in the peripheral, those hard relationships that you have in life, that's not really the context. It's in the spiritual realm. The Old Testament is prophesying about him literally defeating the powers of darkness. The stage is being set. He comes to save us on earth as God. And he makes these unequivocal statements about his deity. He says, I and the Father are one. He says, no one goes to the Father except through me. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so I'm coming down off my throne. I'm born in a manger, but I am not staying in this state. And I am heading to my death so that I can conquer death for you. Massive deal. The disciples get it. And now he's being worshipped. And of course, that doesn't last long. But there's a reason to go to war. 
And I, I don't know your background, but I would, I would love it if, I, I feel like everyone's looking at me, but just, just keep paying attention here because this is critical. I don't know if you've ever heard this before. Maybe it's your first time in church for a while, or maybe you went to a church that didn't really tell you much that had any real controversy or substance to it. You came to church on Palm Sunday, and all your kids got a palm, and it was just a happy day where you got to go to lunch and brunch after service. Nothing wrong with that, but I promise you, that's not the primary context of what's happening in this text. There was a reason. There is a reason for war. He has to be the conquering hero because we were born in the middle of a war. We're born by nature and choice sinners. And sin, I mean this, that we rebel against God, that we say, God, I'm going to do things the way I want to do them, and I don't care what you have to say. We, we were born in this rebellion. We live like we want to live. We speak the way we want to speak. And the world is filled with ways to try to deal with sin. But here, here's the controversy. And here's maybe, depending on your background, if you haven't been to church for a while, if you've never gone to a church that teaches the Bible, here's the controversy. I'll just kind of lay it on a platter for you. The controversy is this, that Jesus alone is the remedy for sin. And when we sin, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. When we sin, we don't just sin against other people. We sin ultimately against God himself. And in his kingdom, this is the spiritual realm, in his kingdom, there is no sin. In his kingdom, it's only perfection. It's only holiness. And so for us to enter into his kingdom, he comes down to earth. He is the only religious leader who ever preaches a message, number one, where he says unequivocally, I am the Father and the Father is in me. I and the Father are one. There's no way to the Father except through me. Jesus isn't just a good guy. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or he's the Savior. And as he's making these claims, he's giving us interest into his kingdom. In his kingdom, there's no sin. And so for us to get into his kingdom, because he's perfect and we're not, and because God is holy and God is a just God, because he demands perfection, he has to send his son down to us, die in our place so that, and he's on the war path here, he's going to the cross so that when God sees us, he doesn't see our sin. The substitute of that is he sees his, the righteousness of his own son in our place. All of this having incredible significance that there are really two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of God, there's the kingdom of darkness. And then here's the real controversy. If you do not belong to the kingdom of God, then you still have a king and his name is Satan. That there's really, it's, it's not like you get this third option. You're either in Christ, following Christ, submitted to Christ, loving Christ, or you still are in a kingdom and it's the kingdom of this world and you have a king and his name is Satan and you have a destiny and it's death and you have an eternity and it's apart from Christ. But when we're in Christ, we're in this other kingdom. Isn't that the liberation? Isn't that why a woman would get on a snowmobile and drive to a conference on a Saturday morning in a storm? Because more than likely, and I don't even know who it is, she's a child of God and she knows what Christ has done for her and so she's willing to sacrifice. If, you, if you're in this kingdom, know this, that, that God hasn't abandoned you, that God has adopted you through Jesus Christ. That, that God isn't against you, God is for you. That God isn't bringing judgment on you, He already judged His own Son in your place. And so now you have the peace of God that passes all understanding, and you're the bride of Christ. And so the people rejoice. 
And it's not kind of like a golf clap. Have you guys ever noticed around here we do a lot of golf claps? It's like, oh, the first song's over. Let's give the Lord a praise. Right? Oh, that coffee. That's good coffee. And it, they're just freaking out. It, it's like state B tournament, no holds bar type of if you don't stop screaming, the rocks are going to cry out because we have something to celebrate. We've been waiting hundreds of years for this climactic event to the greatest story ever told. It has been silent. The book of Malachi was written and then nothing. And now the Messiah is coming in on the colt. And so they're gladly taking their only blanket and throwing it at the feet of Jesus as he's riding into town. Gladly doing that. It's this tension that exists in every great story. There's a struggle. There's a climactic piece of it where he goes to the cross and then the ultimate climactic event when he rises and defeats death. And it's our job as a church as we get ready for the biggest Sunday of the year is to preach this story. This is what we're about. This is why we take communion. This is why we put all our eggs in this basket. It's all about the gospel. It's all about people knowing Jesus, but more than that, it's about people serving, obeying, and laying their life down and picking up their cross and following Jesus for themselves. Because, and here's where it gets really good, because when we lay our lives down to Jesus, we become his bride. It's the greatest love story that's ever been told. It's why Disney knows that they can manipulate our emotions because we have this innate understanding in a general sense of God and there's this longing in our hearts. Disney, who's obviously not Christian, can manipulate our hearts by telling us love stories when really it's just an affection that's so much greater than we even realize. The groom is coming. The groom is headed towards the great wedding feast in the book of Revelation, starting in chapter 19. And here are a few principles. Write them down. When it comes to this wedding that we all want to be a part of, here is the theological undertone of it. Number one, before you get married, you must go to the funeral. You can't, it's like, it's like your ticket. It's your entrance in. You cannot skip the process. Every great coach always has a cliche. Don't skip the process. And then other coaches say, trust the process. You have to trust this process. And the process is this. Without the funeral, there's no wedding. And so in secular circles, no one really has a problem with Jesus. No one really has a problem with a, a nice guy who lived a good life and told us to do humble things. No, no one has a problem with that. In fact, no one typically, even if they're an atheist, has a problem if other people believe in an afterlife. They'll just kind of pat you on the head and say, oh, you naive soul, that's good for you. You must need that because you need that emotional security. There's no controversy in the wedding. There's no controversy in believing that after you die, you go to a better place. But here's the gospel. Before you get to that better place, you have to go to the funeral or you're not getting in. You do not pass go. You do not collect $200. You do not get that entrance ticket. That Jesus Christ goes to that cross to pay your penalty and he does so in your place. And if you don't embrace the work of the cross, then you have no power in the resurrection. You have no entrance in. And it's, it's a tragedy. It's a tragedy because he, here's what it looks like practically. Has anyone ever seen the movie Runaway Bride? Is it Julia Roberts? And she's got the running shoes, doesn't she? I don't know. It's been like 100 years since I've seen it. 
And there's this tension where every time she's about to get married, what does she do? It's not just a clever name. What does she do? Oh my goodness, we're geniuses. It, it's like runaway bride. This, this is culture around us. We are all about the processional. And we, we are all about the wedding in theory. But when it comes to the cost of getting married, that we first have to embrace the funeral before we get to the wedding, it's runaway bride after runaway bride after runaway bride. One of the most frustrating things about working with single people who, who have uh, some dysfunctions in their life is one of the things that they typically do is they typically, this is what dysfunction does, kind of a side note, it runs, it runs, it runs. It's like all they have to do is just make these sequential steps and they can have a life infinitely better than what's been laid out before them in the roadmap that was given to them by their mom and dad. And so now they, they have this chance to redeem not just their past, but their future. And it's like if they would just take these steps relationally, they could have such a better life. They can have such a better marriage. They can have such a better future. And every time they get close, they start getting scared of having healthy attachments to other people. And so then they go from relationship to relationship to relationship and they run, they run, they run. And spiritually, that's what we do. We look at the cost of the actual wedding and we get close and God's saying, you have to surrender, you have to sacrifice, but your life in Christ is infinitely better. And we get close and we go, no, I'm not gonna pay that price. And we put on our running shoes like a runaway bride and we run away. We can be known by Christ and we choose to not surrender to him. Here's another principle through the, the metaphor of the context of this storyline. The second thing would be this. The window to get married doesn't stay open forever. I mean, some of you have just practically lived that out, right? There's this window of time where the harvest is ripe, where the dominoes can fall into place and it doesn't last forever. And so this is what Jesus says. And his heart is broken as the groom. He, he brings this to light that the window's closing, the window's shutting. He goes to Jerusalem in verse 41. When he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day that the things that make for peace, but not that they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And so Jesus is weeping, and that's significant. Jesus doesn't cry a lot. In fact, if he does, he does it so privately that the authors never have a chance to pin it. We see him cry when Lazarus dies. That's the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. And we see him cry as he weeps over Jerusalem. And so real men cry, but, but they cry for good reasons. If you cry for every little thing, then maybe you want to evaluate that, right? Jesus cries, but he's crying for a really good reason. He's saying, man, if you guys could just figure this out. Your eyes are, are veiled. You've been waiting, you've been waiting, you've been waiting, and you still don't get it. And then I show up, and you're going to crucify me. And, and he says there's this window of time for you to respond. And the window of time for us to respond is simply this, until our heart beats for the last time. And the reason that's so significant and scary is this. We never know when that's going to be. This could be it. it there's, there's no telling when that window's going to shut. 
And so Jesus is weeping over Jerusalem. And then for them, the window is in 70 AD. The, the, the temple is sacked and destroyed. Jesus makes a prophecy and it comes to pass because he's Jesus. And so we weep like Jesus weeps. And then he says this, it's not going to just affect you. It's going to check, affect the children within you. It's going to have generational impact when you reject the gospel. When you want the wedding, but you're not willing to go to the funeral. And so he heads towards that cross. And the beauty of the gospel is that it's not too late. The window's still open. But here's the last thing. The last thing is this. When it comes to the metaphor of the wedding between the groom and the bride, to have a healthy marriage, to have a healthy marriage, then our role becomes very simple. What we have to do is we have to align ourselves to the heart of the groom. Throughout the entire gospel narrative, the heart of the groom is on display. He's headed towards the cross. He's headed towards the cross. He is on mission like no one has ever been on mission in the history of mankind. He never deviates. He has a goal in mind and his goal is to save. His goal is to do the will of the Father. And so we align ourselves with the groom. And the reason that's significant is it's like no other marriage. We always talk about the metaphor of marriage. Well, in this context, it's like no other marriage. In fact, if you were to go to a counselor for marriage counseling, one of the key things they're going to tell you is that when you have marital problems, they're going to say, you need to compromise, you need to compromise, you need to compromise. And when people have marriage problems, they typically come in, and I've told you this so many times, but they come in and they're ready to attack and they have a laundry list of reasons that they're better than their spouse and then they meet with the therapist and then the other spouse comes in, which is why I like to meet with both parties if I'm ever doing counseling anymore, because you get completely different narratives. It is crazy how different the narratives can be. And then this prescription is the same. Look to Jesus, compromise, put him first, sacrifice yourself, and, and, and now you can start to see change in your marriage. But when it comes to the wedding of the bridegroom, when it comes to Jesus Christ himself, it's totally different. It's the only marriage that has ever existed in the history of mankind that's not two-sided. It's one-sided. It is one-sided because the goal of marriage is to compromise, but the goal of a marriage in Christ is not to compromise because Jesus has nothing to compromise. Jesus has no selfish will. The goal of a healthy marriage in Christ is not to compromise. It is to align ourselves to the heart of the groom. The heart of the groom, Jesus is always the good guy. He's always the faithful one. He's always the selfless one. He's always the promise keeper. He's always the one to lead. And then as a bride who has its own will, how many times have we not aligned ourselves to the heart of the groom. How many times have we disrespected the groom through our behavior, through our heart and our affections for other things beside him? It's just this disrespectful. Think about it through this metaphor. Here's another insight, and we're just using metaphors of marriage, so I'll throw this out there too, and you probably have heard it. Has anyone ever heard of the book of Love and Respect? Raise your hand if you've heard of that book. Like, If you're getting married, you should probably go through it. Here's the premise of the book, that research shows us very clearly, very clearly, that the number one thing that women desire is to be loved, cherished, nourished. And then a bit counterintuitively, you think, well, don't, doesn't everyone want that? Yes, everyone wants that, but for men it manifests differently. For grooms it manifests differently. If you want to truly uh, just absolutely have a healthy marriage with your future man, single ladies, then the thing that they most value isn't just love, but love manifested by being respected. 
How, how many men in this room can concede? They would have so many things uh, that they would put up with, but if they feel disrespected, they shut down. True? It's okay to have a, a little man pride and just admit that. Anybody? Like, you can do a lot. Like, so if, if your wife was to disrespect you publicly, men, how many of you, that would set you off? How many of you, you'd feel just kind of undermined and, and devalued by that? And, and the whole idea is, if you want to disrespect the groom, just refuse to let him lead. Refuse to, to allow him to be that pastor in the home. If you want to disrespect the groom, then refuse to align yourself with his leadership. And then think about that on a, on a million times scale, a, a magnitude through the roof when Jesus Christ, who's perfect, because ladies, how many of you know your husband's anything but perfect? And so it's sometimes hard to follow that type of leadership. And the Bible calls us to do it. But think about it through this lens. Jesus Christ is the perfect groom. In your own marriage, when you refuse to respect your spouse, how much tension does that create? When you have a controlling or overbearing spirit and you seek to undermine or manipulate, it's something that's intolerable in marriage. It creates all sorts of alignment issues. It creates all sorts of resentment and tension in the marriage. Now think about it through the lens of the gospel. Jesus, the perfect groom, is calling us, and we don't have to compromise because he's perfect. He's calling us to align ourselves with him. And if we want to not just have a marriage, if we want to have a healthy marriage with Christ where there's spiritual fruit manifesting in that marriage, and we want to be oneness in Christ, we want to have oneness in Christ, then we need to align ourselves to the heart of the groom, where we say, Jesus, whatever you tell us to do at New Life, we are all about what you want for us. We want to surrender our own life, our own will, and lay it at your feet. And we want to experience the peace that comes from the benefits of a healthy marriage in you. We want that oneness. We want that peace. We want that stability. We want that trust. We want that hope. We want that future. We want that generational impact in you. Jesus is a Messiah worth following. He is going in on that donkey and he's headed to that cross. And three days later, this is what we're going to scream from the rooftops next Sunday. He rises from death and he conquers it. He conquers it. He is the very essence of masculinity. He's a provider, he's a protector. And he provides a means of salvation for each person in this space, first service, who would cry out and call on his name and surrender their own life down and lay it at the foot of the cross. This is a Jesus, this is a prince, the prince of peace worth following. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. Prepare our hearts, Lord, as as we start to just get ready for this reality that you went to that cross. That you were that spotless lamb, that perfect sacrifice. There are so many people in Aberdeen, Lord. There's so many people around us that don't know you. We're all broken, but but without you we have no hope. As we look at this metaphor of this marriage that we can have in you, God, help us to be so sensitive to the fact that if we've made that decision to follow you, that we're living in this open window where so many have not. Give us a burden to reach people for you. Thank you for that processional. 
Thank you for the funeral. And thank you for the wedding. We pray these things in your name and everybody said, Amen. Amen.